Hello, dear readers. This is Sky. Uh, I'm here to apologize on behalf of uh, John and Katie and I for how late this episode is. Uh, usually we try to get the episodes to you, the readers, every uh, week on Thursday mornings, and uh, this week it didn't happen. Uh, we split the editing duties up between the three of us, and all three of us are uh, busy with uh, our jobs and lives, and sometimes it gets away from us. We're going to make an effort in the future to make sure it gets to you on time every week, um, but we're back, uh, and we have this, uh, the third to last Cloud Atlas chapter for you today. We have two more weeks of Cloud Atlas. We'll probably do an episode on the Cloud Atlas movie that was released a few years ago. And then we're going to be on to our next work, which I think we'll probably announce in the next couple of weeks. So uh, you'll have time to uh, pick up a copy and maybe get a head start if you need it. Uh, until then, here's the show. Thank you, d dear readers. You should just do it like a rapper. You should be like, when I say pizza, you say party. Pizza. Party. Pizza. Party. Party. You're... Okay, there you go. I'm not sure what kind of rap you listen to. But... <laughs> um, the best rap from 1990s Chuck E. Cheese, maybe? I don't know. I'm just making that up. That's sort of what it sounds like, though. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Interlibrary Loan. Today's an exciting episode as we finally find out what happens to Louisa Ray. If you recall, we last saw her plunging over the side of a bridge into the ocean. So, as always, we are going to quickly recap the first section of this story and then quickly recap last week's readings. Um, I guess I'll get started with last or with uh, the, the first section of the story. So if we recall, this is a mystery novel format and our protagonist, Louisa Ray, is an investigative journalist whose father kind of set the standard for her of what a, a journalist, what an, um, of what an investigative journalist could be, what someone who would protect his sources and kind of prove the truth at, no matter the cost. So she quickly gets sucked into this conspiracy around a possibly faulty nuclear power reactor that is being constructed in a fictionalized city between Los Angeles and San Francisco. Her, her first contact for this is Rufus Sixsmith, if, who is, if you recall, the recipient of the letters from Zettelgem in the second slash next section of this book. Um, and so as we, when we saw her last time, she was kind of piecing together everything after a quick conversation she had had in the elevator with Dr. Sixsmith. Now, since then, we've gone through a whole bunch of other parts of Cloud Atlas, and uh, two of the three stories that we've read between revisiting this one are directly about nuclear energy and its effects on society and uh, how radiation has destroyed most of it. And yeah, so a lot of interesting threads there, including the fact that this is called the Hydra Reactor, and then we get references to Hydra and Sanmi 451, but then also like in the second to last page of Cavendish, he, he calls the brothers of Dermot Hoggins, he calls them Hydra. So, you know, just revisiting themes, images, and uh, the complete destruction of civilization by nuclear energy, you know, as one does. But, like I said, we saw her last plunging off the side of a bridge as the fixer for the company Seaboard Energy uh, pushed her in the middle of the night. That's my fun little recap, and who wants to catch us up on last week's? 
John, I think you should have to do it to prove that you actually read the the pages. <laughs> I'm just playing with you. I'll do it if you want. <laughs> okay. Um. All right. Last week, uh, we read the thrilling conclusion to the ghastly ordeal of Timothy Cavendish, uh, after recovering from a smoke uh, stroke. Not a smoke. Uh, smoke recovering happens in this section. Mm-hmm. Louise Ray. Um, after recovering from a stroke, uh, Mr. Timothy Cavendish. Uh, plots his escape from the uh, Aurora House uh, nursing home with Ernie and Veronica, uh, fellow inmates, so to speak, at the home. Um, Their plan goes off uh, after several hiccups. Their plan is uh, wildly successful, and they end up at the Hanged Edward, a, uh, a bar in Scotland, and uh, they're followed by Noakes and others from Aurora House, um, but they're saved at the last minute when Mr. Meeks uh, provokes a bar brawl uh, between the Englishman and the Scotsman <laughs> who are in the bar, uh, allowing them to all escape. And then Timothy Cavendish uh, returns to his former life, uh, wealthy and excited about uh, the future. The end. <laughs> And honestly, I don't like to talk about, or, or I don't want to talk about the movie too much, but this section of the movie, like the second half of Cavendish, is amazing. I'm really excited to watch this movie. I am so excited as well, because as Sky said, the last part of Timothy Cavendish is like this rollicking adventure, and I just can totally imagine it on the screen. It basically turns into a picaresque. <laughs> oh yeah, we we were comparing it last week to uh, like the Adventures of Mister Toad. Yeah. Um, no, but what I want to know um, is is rollicking a word that is ever used to describe a non-fictional event or story. I feel like rollicking is only ever used to describe works of fiction. I'm gonna start using it in my day-to-day life. I mean, yeah. I, f- I feel like you might describe use it to describe an event or something. You know, like, come on down for a rollicking good time at, like, Uncle Patty's meat hut. I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't say that with a straight... Come around for a rollicking good time at Uncle Patty's meat hut. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this continues the tradition of Sky does bad accents on <laughs> the podcast. You know what I'm... Imagining that Uncle Patty's meat hut would be. Is it's like it's a salad bar, but instead of salad, it's chili. <laughs> so like so, so like there's a vat that's just beef and like a vat of turkey. And then there's like later on there's like a vat of tomatoes and a vat of it. you just go through and make your own chili. Alright. Uh, Uncle Patty's meat hut is definitely like it used to be a pizza hut. It's still got the, oh, the pizza hut roof. Oh, this is sounding oh. worse and worse as we continue. <laughs> Uh, well, for used to be a Pizza Hut, I refer you to that episode of 99% Invisible. <laughs> or the blog upon which that episode is based. True. Used to be a Pizza Hut. Ut baths, for short. Anyway. Right, back back to the topic at hand. Yeah, so Louisa Ray. Um, there's a... Oh, it, what I find interesting is before we started w- recording, Sky said, I feel like this is going to be a short chapter because it's pretty quick, like, cut and dry, like, the plot, which is, like, correct. And then Katie and I looked at each other and were like, but no, there's so much metafiction going on here. It's crazy. Yeah. 
and we get it almost right off the bat in this because we pick up immediately where we left off with Louisa Ray uh, since Cavendish has now acquired the second half of the manuscript. That's how we're viewing the second half of the Louisa Ray mystery. And we, we immediately jump in meeting Louisa underwater and she's struggling to get out of this car but then she remembers like just as she frees herself from her watery doom she remembers the uh the document of Sixsmith the report and so she goes back to to grab it but what happens it like floats away she loses sheafs and sheafs of paper out of the thing and that was for for me the first of these like meta meta narrative moments within this section because this is another this is like visualization of a character grasping at something that is giving truth and the harder she's grasping at it the more it's slipping away plus we're returning to something that we've seen time and time again in this book which is either a fall literally or symbolically but also like specifically drowning or falling into water uh there's a moment in zettelgem where frobisher kind of just like trips into the lake and forgets about it thankfully thankfully the volume of nietzsche he, he's able to save <laughs> um and this you know she is not able to save the papers they kind of float away from her but she saves her life so that's worth something <laughs> i guess <laughs> Uh, but then also in Cavendish, we find out, you know, last chapter that his horrible brother, who is the one who locked him up in the first place, drowned in their fish pond. <laughs> so, you know, this it, it's weird to say that it's variations on a theme because each narrative is so incredibly different from each other. But I mean, in a lot of ways, it really is. It's almost like. I mean, one, the Cloud Atlas sextet composed by Robert Frobisher invites this comparison but you know it's you have a, a central theme and then you do weird things to it in different movements as a sextet um, specifically what's coming to mind right now though is all of those really bad like disco covers of um, like classical music like a fifth of Beethoven <laughs> So wait, are we living in the like uh, fifth of Beethoven remix world of Cloud Atlas when we're reading Louisa Ray? This is I something think, I wanted to talk I to think you guys we a are. lot about in this in this section because like even Timothy Cavendish, who Sanmi Me Four Five One experiences as a film and not the memoir that we're reading, uh, there's this um, even in that there's like a divide between what the fiction is and what we are assuming like is real but this is we are reading a fictional i mean it's not clear whether this is literally just a fictional story or a fictionalized version of true events or what um but it it sort of calls the whole narrative into question for me what did you guys think about this section it is markedly different from the others and it it, it is because i think it's it is it's a it's a it's a novel within the novel it's there are plot holes in Louisa Ray. They're a little a little too holy to ignore. So Yeah, like how does Bill Smoke know that the report is in this specific locker in this specific bank? Because didn't Sixsmith leave it in the airport locker? Yeah. And not in a bank locker? 
No, I, the airport locker. Oh, yeah, wait. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, so this whole thing, I thought there would be a moment at the end of this section where Louisa Ray is like, and then I finished the finishing touches on this detective story, which is an extremely loose, uh, you know, imagining of this real thing that happened to me, which I will now summarize in one paragraph. <laughs> and it's not nearly as exciting and impressive as what you guys just read. And... Uh, but the real thing in it, one of the real things was this, the letters from Frobisher, which I'm going, you know, like, that's how I thought this was going to end, was that there would be some sort of narrative break in which the nature of the artifice for the Louisa Ray mystery was discussed. And that just doesn't happen. Um, and so it really calls into the question the nature of the overarching narrative of this whole book, because one of the purported reincarnations seems to be entirely fictional. Except there is a moment when we call into question the re realness of the narrative, and it's Cavendish who does it, because he's reading the manuscript on the train in the first Cavendish section. Mm -hmm. And he talks about how it's, you know, he, he, he has disdain for a lot of its kind of modernistic elements. It's clever, bite-sized chapters, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's interesting you know, Katie, what you mentioned about that inconsistency with the bank locker, you know, these, these plot holes, these are the kinds of things that would be covered up or, you know, taken care of when you edit a story, right? Mm -hmm. But of course, we're not reading a, really a published novel. We're reading the manuscript. The Cavendish, So that yeah. brings, yeah. So That's that a good brings point. into question, like a lot of, some, I mean, so much of what we've been talking about is the nature and like relationship of truth so we're reading a version of this story before it has gone through the like truth sequencing you know and sometimes we glimpse a truer truth you mean sometimes the true true Ain't the is different from true. the semen true <laughs> uh i mean and as we find out at the uh end of cavendish the pen name for the author is hillary v hush we find out that v is for vincent um so hey look no truth at all. But anyway, let's get back to this events in Louisa Ray before we get too much more into the overall structure of the novel. I feel like there's a, I don't know, do you feel, I, I, what I find interesting about this is I think this chapter has a lot more, or this section of the novel has a lot more that is extraneous than most other sections. You know, there's so many characters that I don't know they're fully important, like, Margot Roger or Hester Van Zandt or Faye Lee or... Yeah, you know. I found myself mostly interested in Louisa. I think that's like part of the genre and style that David Mitchell is trying to emulate here, though, right? Like a, a thriller novel like this has all of these different plots told from these different characters' perspectives. Some of them are major and some of them are minor. But one of the things that it needs to do at the end is sort of wrap up at least some of those like loose ends so that's why we get you know there's a section at the end where it describes um marco roker's uh like coming out of her coma um which is totally superfluous through the plot although it does have a kind of um it it emphasizes and highlights the kind of resurrection uh aspect of the narrative that we've gotten both from uh sanmi 451 and from um uh timothy cavendish so maybe maybe it's like it's superfluous to the plot, but maybe a lot of these things serve to like highlight themes and and cause repetitions. Hmm. Timothy Cavendish, a modern day Christ. <laughs> Pretty much. 
I mean, we'll we'll talk about that, but I mean, you know, a a broadly Christian reading of the comet, um, and the, like the comet's journey is definitely possible so far. Oh, like you know, a star has appeared above the city of Bethlehem. Sure, but also just like they're all sort of Christ figures, um, in certain ways, perhaps. I'm not saying I, I'm not prepared to make that argument yet. I'm just saying <laughs> I, I, it seems like one one of these could be made. <laughs> I was about to say the uh, my my inner Catholic is about to pick that into pieces, but uh, well, I don't know. In um in my ninth grade English class, my best friend Tom and I spent probably an entire class period trying to argue to our English teacher that Kurtz from Heart of Darkness was in fact a Christ figure. We had all these. Wow. Uh, ele- yeah, it was it was a uh, and I thought we put forward a pretty good argument about this. Um, so, uh, yeah, well, uh, maybe Cloud Atlas, too. Re- regardless <laughs> if that can be successfully argued or not, what I will say is that Isaac Sachs makes some real great yeah. Uh, observations. Yeah, that puts us back to the front of this section. So let's start there and continue chronologically. So Isaac Sachs, if you recall, was the engineer, the second engineer she met after Sixsmith, and he took kindly to her as well. And he's the one who smuggled her the report that she ended up losing in the ocean. Um, and at the last minute, he was called away on a trip to Three Mile Island. Yeah, and so as he's sitting on a plane, unbeknownst to him, six feet directly beneath his seat is a suitcase in the baggage hold containing... Six an- feet under. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, in a suitcase uh, in, in the baggage hold containing enough C4 to turn an airplane into a meteor. So we have Isaac Sachs philosophizing, basically. Yeah, he's essentially writing out a very, very rough outline of the novel Cloud Atlas. Yeah, yeah. And he's 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 questioning his, his own conscience. Well, I mean, what he talks about, too, is this relationship between, like, the actual past and the virtual past. Uh-huh. Saying, like, using the example of the Titanic, like, the actual past of the titanic are the people who experienced it and the firsthand accounts and i mean the material of the ship itself and as those people die and as the ship you know rusts away and you know as as we lose contact to that we still have this idea of what the sinking of the titanic was and you know like obviously this is is this section is based in the 70s so the movie had not come out yet well the movie titanic i mean other movies like raising of the titanic which was a 70s flop or you know a night remember those had but you know this book was written after the movie came out so like i feel like david mitchell probably very specifically chose the titanic as an example for this to point to us and make us think of like oh yeah our primary experience for this that he's referencing is this like really sensationalized fictionalized account Mm -hmm. um and then what he does also is like flips that around and says that then there's an actual future and a virtual future as well so like what i found interesting about this is he says that the virtual past is is influenced by the actual past but the actual future is going to be influenced by the virtual future because you know it's this kind of futurism concept like our ideas of the future are going to in some ways like change what we're going to strive for and work for and develop what i find really interesting is this is a different section it's later on it's i think it's louisa talking to javi and they basically are saying like can you see the future 
can you change the future if you see it? And then she says, like, well, if you can, basically, like, if you can see the future, then it's pro then it's something that exists, so you can't change it yet. It's just, a, like, a discussion on that. But then also the question of, like, if I saw the future, would I want to, like, be steering towards that? That's, yeah, so. it, that's a whole discussion on determinism. <laughs> and the fact that the future for this book is nuclear holocaust, and she is trying to effectively disarm a nuclear weapon. Um, yeah. Sadly, I don't think she would be Not, satisfied by what she saw. No, it would be unsuccessful. But then another little tidbit in Isaac Sachs' uh, notes that he's writing uh, is about this model of time, which is exactly what we're presented in the structure of Cloud Atlas. An infinite Matryoshka doll of painted moments, each shell, the present, encased inside a nest of shells, previous presents. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's he's definitely, like, been reading his Foucault <laughs> uh, and doing some sort of, like, intellectual archaeology here. Um, I know that, like, my copy, for instance, of Foucault's The Order of Things is specifically, like, the cover image is these, you know, Matryoshka dolls. Um, that are supposed to be like sort of a, a metaphor for the, you know, the like men the the intellectual archaeology um, that uh, that Foucault does. Did you ever read The Order of Things, Jonathan? No. Oh, I feel like I feel like we should. <laughs> We're not going to do it on this podcast, uh, <laughs> so you can rest easy about that, readers. But maybe sometime we should we should read it. I'm due for a reread. A podcast on post-structuralism. That sounds uh, like. I mean, it starts. Have you read the introductory essay, which is about Las Meninas? I feel mm. like that's something you definitely should read. I feel like I have read it because when you describe it like that, it rings. Like, that seems like something I've read, but it seems like something I read alongside six other essays, so I didn't, like, give it a lot of thought at the time. Oh, yeah, it's super rad. Anyway, um, this is super off topic. Uh, back on to topic. He then claims that he has fallen in love with Louisa Ray, someone who he has talked to for what, like five minutes or something? Um, however, however, this could raise questions if maybe they've interacted in previous lives. Right. Could Isaac sure. Sachs be Well it can't be it can't be Sixman no. and Frobisher. But maybe maybe they're uh they're Ottawa and Ewing. Maybe? Or maybe they belong to a timeline of experiences for these souls that we are not privy to as readers. Anyway, as soon as he says that he's fallen in love with Louisa Ray, the entire well, plane explodes and they all may- die. Or maybe, maybe uh, Isaac Sachs and Louisa Ray are Sanmi and Heiju, or Zachary and Miranem, or good old Tim Tim and Ursi. Timbo. Timbo. Isaac Sachs is. Perhaps a reference to Oliver Sacks and also maybe like Isaac Newton, as his attributes are gravity, and gravity is frequently talked about in this section, and also like the human mind and human experience. Hmm. Um, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. But as it turns out, he was not the only person on that plane. Of importance, Alberto Grimaldi, the CEO of the energy company, was also on there. Um, and then we find out, guess who becomes the new CEO of this energy company? None other than Lloyd Hooks, the U.S. Department of, or the U.S. Secretary of Energy at the time. 
Um, I will say it's a little terrifying watching the entire executive state of our government be overtaken by literally corporations. Uh, it, it's weird seeing a, a parallel of that in this book, you know? Get ready, kids. Uh, there, Yeah, right. There were a lot. This section has a lot of things where I'm just like, ooh. ooh Hitting too close mm, to home. Yeah. Wow. Mm, about that. But then um, some other things that come into play here. Joe Napier, the security, they're kind of, there's like the head of security, which is Joe Napier. And then there's the fixer, which is Bill Smoke. And as it turns out, Joe Napier, who we treated as a, as a bad person or, a, you know, a, a villain character in the first half becomes a hero in the second half because he was at the, the police raid on the wharf that was such an important event in her father's life and in fact her father saved joe napier's life he literally so saved have, his butt yeah so there we have uh you know fate coming into play not just like with connections between the stories but within this story itself so as as it ends up happening she survives the fall and then goes to the magazine finds out that her magazine has been bought by a holding company for seaboard seaboard power and they fired only her nobody else but at the last minute, a letter came for her with the key that belonged to the lockbox that is no longer at the airport and is now at the bank. She goes to the bank. Uh, somehow, both Faley and Bill Smoke were there. And it turns out that Faley is working maybe for a, a, a third third party or something. And then there's a next No, she's just corrupt. She just says, yeah, she got like bribed by some other... Um like source to well, expose yeah. the she, report. Well, well, that's what she that's what she tells Louisa. She also says to Louisa, like, "I'm gonna let you walk away free." And then she says to the guy in Cantonese, "Like, kill, kill her. her." Blah blah blah. So maybe right. that entire thing was a lie. Like, what is the nature of truth? We don't know. Um, well, okay, so it's not clear whether she's gonna expose, but she does say, like, you know, um, uh, Bill Smoke is not in it for the money, so he underestimates True. how much everyone else is in it for the money. So she's been bribed, and it's not clear who her, who's bribe, you know, who's bribing her. Yeah. The second the bank explodes, Joe Napier shows up and and rescues her from Bill Smoke, and then they go on this like dirty Harry style chase through a an illegal factory that is making knockoffs of like Big Bird and Donald Duck toys. Yeah. And I found that really interesting because the description of like the slummy neighborhood in which they are like running through is very similar to the description of the slums in uh, Asami 451 where she goes to the face scaper. And in fact, with all of the focus on like corporations and brand, well, and but the, the weird way that brands have been used, but like, taken back a little bit in in Sami 451 where all movies are called Disney's and then now we have an operation that is set up to create like illegal knockoffs of Disney characters plus at the end when like Lloyd Hooks becomes the CEO and you know it's talking about like embracing the like ability of corporations to run our society and in fact there are three characters uh, who are kind of spouting like very clearly meant to be obnoxious talking points about that. Like this section is mirroring Sami four five one a lot more than the first half of it did. That's true, and also that whole description of the like um, sweatshop factory with the stuffed animals 
it it has a feel very similar to, and a mood very similar to the uh, the uh, Papa Song's arc scene in Sanmi Four Five One. Only like in a bizarre inversion, these are like animals, like stuffed animals that are getting like stuffed with things in a kind of unnatural way, rather than being like butchered in an unnatural way. It's like this weird inversion. And the workers there are undocumented Mexican immigrants. And the chair, not the chair, the, like proprietor of this plant, thinks that this is at first is an FBI raid and says, our workers are fine. They don't need a union. No union here. We take good care of them. So that returns to not just within Sanmi 451, but then the beginning sections of Luisa Ray when uh, the, the airline strike prevented Six Smith from being able to leave on time. Yeah, the she also at one point Louisa Ray thinks like this factory looks like 1875, not 1975, um, which is like an interesting. What year does uh, Adam Ewing take place during the gold rush? So oh, okay, be, so before yeah. significantly yeah. before. Yeah, but did you catch the name of the neighborhood where her mother lives? Uh, no, what was that? Ewingsville. Ah. Oh, that's fun. And at the end, she finally she gets her hands on a third copy of the report and doesn't lose this one on Rufus's you know boat, the starfish. But what other boat was near this dock? None other than the prophetess. Oh, the prophetess! Yes, of course. Yeah, and of course, in this case, she is also being a literal prophetess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, so uh, when they're when they're being held up in the factory, the particular thug that has been sent to kill them, Bisco, asks Napier for his last words, and Napier goes, "Last words? What are you, dirty Harry?" <laughs> and uh, and then Bisco says, "Yeah, I got a book of last words, and those are now yours." Um, and they're uh, uh, saved in spectacular fashion at the last minute, but. Uh, but yeah, when you describe the the chase as being like Dirty Harry, like there's a literal reference to Dirty Harry in here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the best part about this scene is he call he uses a racial slur against the like factory supervisor, and she beats him to death with a wrench, and then says, "And don't call me that racial slur." Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's. <laughs> But then she says to Luisa in Spanish, what translates to hurry up and get aw- get out of here. Also, that man is old enough to be your father. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was that scene is like straight out of a Tarantino movie. It was very fun. Yeah. Um, so let's see. They end up uh, calling in sort of at the last minute. Megan Sixsmith, who shows up at the Museum of Modern Art and uh tells them where to find the report it's in the the boat and they go to the boat and uh just as they're getting the report uh bill smoke himself finally shows up and uses a silencer uh, a silenced pistol to shoot napier and then napier in his heroic moment uh manages to uh to shoot uh bill smoke back and that's sort of like the end of the action in this story. Like, uh, 
Well, it's, it was yeah, that's the climax, basically. The only other important thing to point out here is that when Megan comes in, she drops one last important detail about the the actual reality of hi- the Hydra Zero reactor. Yes, she mentions that the report was worked on with Seaboard and the Department of Defense. And Louisa says, defense, not, 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 not energy. And she says, oh, yeah, the reactor was designed to spit out weapons-grade plutonium. Or uranium. uranium. Mm-hmm. Um, or, which is, I mean, that's not a realistic thing. You have to use centrifuges to refine uranium into weapons-grade because there are two common isotopes, uranium-235 and uranium-238. Uh, I shouldn't go into that further, except a fun tidbit. Uh, during... World War II, the main centrifuge was located in Tennessee and used an estimated 10% of the electrical output of the entire United States during the five years of World War II. That's kind of awesome. Mm-hmm. So there we have it. <laughs> Shadowy bomb factory cum nuclear power plant. And in fact, the reason why nuclear power really became a thing is because the United States government had put all of this money and all of this energy into developing nuclear technology and then as the cold war kind of continued and mutually assured destruction became very very clear and uh dangerous it was decided like oh we have to find something to do with all of this all of this radioactive material that we've rounded up and you know refined and studied and so like our nuclear energy program is largely a recipient of our uh, weapons research. Yep. Mm-hmm. So we, we get um, actually in a very similar fashion to the Timothy Cavendish uh, stories ending, we get a sort of like, a, you know, a, a wrap up um, denouement section where it explains, you know, what has happened to Louisa Ray in the immediate <laughs> aftermath. And there's this, a couple of interesting little tidbits in this section because it's, so it's October 1st, and Louisa Ray is sitting at the Snow White Diner, which Snow White, that Disney princess, she woke up out of a forced sleep, right? Right at the same moment when Napier and uh, Smoke had their shootout on, on, the, on the yacht. Who woke up? Margot Roker. I don't know. That's just kind of an interesting tidbit for me mm-hmm. yeah I mean we also completely eclipsed the fact that Louisa went to the music store to pick up her copy of the Cloud Atlas sextet yes and it was playing it was playing on the oh, yeah. stereo when she walked in she's like oh well, I'm here to pick up one record but I recognize this I need this one too and it turns out the two are the same yeah so. and she, she bum, bum, bum. and that piece of music is incredibly rare so she wouldn't have heard it before but what Louisa recognizes it also when she sees the prophetess when uh, they're on the way to the starfish she has this w- strange throbbing in her comet birthmark so another of these spooky spooky comet soul moments yeah and then we end with another spooky comet soul moment I guess we could say is that she has received some mail from Megan Sixsmith, which contains the last of Frobisher's letters to Rufus. And so Louisa, like, inhales the scent of these letters, which we can all relate to, can't we? Like, smelling old paper, and, oh, it's just great. As someone who who has worked in bookstores for 
Longer than any other job that I've ever had, yes, definitely. <laughs> uh, and she asks herself, are molecules of Zettelgum Chateau of Robert Frobisher's hand dormant in this paper for 44 years, now swirling in my lungs, in my blood? Who is to say? And are they are they now swirling in her lungs and blood because of inhaling them? Or were they swirling already because she has this cosmic connection to Frobisher? Who can say? Bum, bum, bum. <sighs> she doesn't have lungs. She's a fictional character. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but is it? We don't know yet. <laughs> it's hard to even try to talk about how this section has further exploded my understanding of the book because this book does not have a single central theme. It has like 18 central themes and yeah. each one gets more like simultaneously re refined and complex. And ostensibly her narrative is about the nature of truth. But then there's so much more about the relationship, you know, between time, there's cause and effect of the, the interplay between souls. But then this is also, I think what I really got out of both the recurring invocation of the Hydra motif, but also the meditation on time and determinism is it's really driving home what is a central story or central tenet to this work, which is just that no matter how hard you struggle, you're never going to, maybe not you as an individual, but like we're never going to eradicate struggle. It really hammers in that you're never going to eradicate the, the adversity that people go through. The fact that there are always people fighting against causes that, you know, suppress them in some way or another. And yeah, there's always, always going to be like this trap that people get stuck in, I suppose. And does it seem darker to you since like, Louisa is successful. She uncovers this corruption, but we know what happens. Exactly. So, at, at the there's this there's this feeling of like calm and closure and hope almost to her at the end, but at the same time there isn't because re regardless of this corruption that she's exposed, it's going to happen. It's, it's like it's almost like Sarah Connor in uh, Terminator Two: Judgment Day, where she talks about the fact that she's postponed judgment day but she hasn't canceled it right so that's kind of dark <laughs> so what do you guys think of joe napier in this section um joe napier in this section goes from he's uh, a, a villainous character in the first section and then he is uh you know he goes through this journey and is like redeemed at the end of this section uh you know shooting bill smoke and uh and aiding louise ray but it really seems like like this is still the man who ordered for Sixsmith to be murdered. You know what I mean? Like the the story the David Mitchell's writing in the in the sort of tradition of a of a thriller novel does a great job at taking you on this journey where you forget that like he wasn't just portrayed as a villainous character in the first half, but he did some pretty fucked up things in the first half. But I mean that kind of goes with the general incongruity we see between the first and second half where like the report yeah. isn't in the airport anymore it's in the like this is dealing with the nature of truth right because this book is separated into two sections and then we read those sections really quite far away from each other we forget a lot of the original truths mm -hmm. you know it, yeah. it's like it's, it's like what sanvi says um truth is singular it's it's versions are mistruths right this seeks to hammer that in 
Yeah. I think, and the first time that I believed Napier that he was, like, going good and, like, not, uh, you know, the villain or the mastermind. Like, I didn't believe that um, until Napier uh, shows up at the bank and, you know, leads Louisa away, Ray away from the uh, the explosion at the bank. That's the first time where I was like, oh, okay, now I know sort of for sure that Napier is, like, you know, actually uh, honest. Um, but, you know, when, when Napier gets, like, forced out or and when Napier... When Napier first appears and, you know, says to Louisa Ray, like, hey, I'm not here forget to about you. this. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not here to hurt you. Other people are, though, and you should get out of here. I was like, I don't believe you a second, Joe Napier. <laughs> yeah. You, like, you're part of this whole plot. But it turns out he isn't. At least not that plot. But he totally did have Sixsmith killed. So, like, that's the thing. Yeah, a lot of, like, duplicity and judicing going on in this section. Even um, Van Zant's uh, uh, friend Milton has been uh, in the payroll of Napier and is, you know, selling uh, Louisa Ray out to Napier. Right after Hester uh, Van Zant says, I'd trust Milton with my life. Like, the immediate next scene is Milton going and, like, double-crossing her. <laughs> this is like, I mean, this is like, you know, freshman creative writing, and it's like, write a story that exemplifies dramatic irony. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's almost frustrating to talk about this section. I mean, increasingly just this book, because I think David Mitchell wrote this book in this way to highlight the fact that there are some really complicated relationships between truth and fiction, reality, all of that, that you can't say simply. Like, you have to internalize these contrasting narratives to be able to understand his point. So at certain points, I feel like I'm trying to boil down this thing and at the same time say that this thing is so complex that I can't speak about it fully, you know? Yes, it is It is indiscreet in a way that that defies uh, summary. It's a, it, it, it's, it's a cloud atlas, guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, what we can talk about are our favorite quotes. There's a section after Joe helps Louisa out the first time he just warned her like you got to get out of here you got to drop it and then as soon as he goes back to work like immediately they offer him a retirement package and like oh we're so happy for you you get to leave early blah 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 thank you so much and he like knows this is fishy but he's like okay this is my time this is my chance out like i can wash my hands of this and then what he does is he drives to his cabin in the woods that like he and his dad put together when he was a kid and he's just like thinking about life all that and during this section we get his like memories of his wife his ex-wife or maybe late wife it's not immediately clear um and then he at the end of this chapter decides to like turn around and go back and he has to help um he has to help louisa out and what i loved about this is that he makes this decision and he leaves and then I don't even remember his wife's name right now and I don't have the page open in front of me but the last line of the chapter is she always won arguments by saying nothing and at the same time like I thought that quote was very super like genre fiction and it like fit the bill well but I also really liked it just because I thought it was like who among us hasn't had that moment where you've 
been debating doing something and you know what your conscience is saying you're trying to talk yourself out of it and finally you're like okay i've talked myself through every excuse and i still just have to do this <laughs> my favorite quote was I, I i don't know it's 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 very small and insignificant it seems maybe but i just liked it and it's uh when they're at the third bank of california and Faye and her lugs are uh, stealing the key from from Louisa, and uh, the the guards at the bank are deterred by uh, Faley's ID, and it says the Chinese ideograms repel white scrutiny with their ancient tribal magic. I like that, but it also reminded me of the uh, dendroglyphs. Yes. Yeah, we haven't we haven't had an occasion to talk about um, Cloud Atlas as a book about colonial uh, colonialism um, in a while uh, because Sanmi four five one has those themes, but they are very um, they're very abstracted. They're different, yeah. And Cavendish, I think, has those themes less than other sections, especially that second half of the Cavendish narrative. But man, the rest of the book, it's back. Colonialism, guys. It's going to be great. Uh-huh. Um, so my favorite, uh, I this happens a few times in this section. It's a, it's a kind of thing that Louisa Ray does, um, which is very much like uh, something that a, a, you know, thriller novel would do uh and it's she's got these comebacks when people you know when with she she makes these snappy comebacks that like obviously convey what she's trying to communicate um but are really silly and nonsensical uh at one point joe napier says like hey you should have a gun and she's like no nah, i don't want to use a gun and then he goes, well, everyone should learn to use a gun. And she says, yeah, you can see crowds of them laid out in morgues, which like <laughs> yeah. it conveys her position, but is not a response to what he just said. Like it has no it has no like direct connection. And then like two pages later, she's her mother's talking to her and trying to get her to be interested in the, the boorish Henderson triplets uh, or Henderson brothers. Uh, boys, boys like the Hendersons don't grow on trees, you know, aphids grow on trees. <laughs> Like that's not a resp- that means that doesn't mean anything, <laughs> um, but it definitely gets the point across. So I thought those were really fun. All right, are we want to go on to things of the week? Sure. Yeah. Uh, my thing of the week is getting over food poisoning. <laughs> that's a pretty good thing. I don't know what it is about saltine crackers, but oh my god! It's like as soon as I got saltines and started eating them, I felt better. See, I know people who cannot eat saltines because they eat them only they, the, the only memory they have of them really is eating them when they're sick so they hate them that's a shame because saltines are great right yeah i understand i understand that but at the same time like there have been times when i've been sick and then i fell in love with the thing that nurtured me back to health i'm looking at you gatorade <laughs> when i had a uh, mono gatorade was like the only thing i could consume for a solid week and a half and i always hated it before then and now when i'm feeling really dehydrated like i just crave it <laughs> Uh, other than that, I... Do you have any tips for getting over uh, food poisoning other than saltines and Gatorade? Uh, are are mean, those the, the big ones? You know, the standard, like, soup and rice and, you know, patience. Okay. 
What did what did you watch when you were trying to get over your food poisoning? What, a lot did you of watch. I watched a lot of Gilmore Girls. Not a bad choice. And I played a lot of Pokemon and a lot of Civilization Six, which is amazing. Wait, did you play Pokemon Sun and Moon? Yeah. Are they good? I've heard they're good. I mean, are you a Pokemon person? I have not played a Pokemon since like Ruby and Sapphire. Yeah, so like it's it's like an iterative franchise. They're not even evolutions. They're like minor changes and each time the formula changes just a little bit more and each time it embraces like a slightly more mature and modern concept of what a Pokemon game could and or should be. So, it's if if you're the kind of person who enjoyed watching like King of the Hill over its what like 10 seasons and watch it turn from a just a satire about like small town life to a very very pointed political satire but still very goofy and it did it like slowly and in very incrementally then yes, this is a like a good Pokemon game. At the end like if you like Pokemon, you're going to like this game and if you don't, you're probably not. Wait, but so is Pokemon Sun and Moon a, a like pointed and and like complex political satire? Because that would be awesome. I mean, not really, but it's more subtle and mature and sly than previous games have. I, I mean, see. as somebody who's been playing Pokemon for my entire life, like you know, since I was eight, like that's nineteen years of my life. It's really been an interesting experience. It's almost like the three of us were the perfect age for Harry Potter because he grew older as we did, mm-hmm. you know? Yes. Like the last Harry Potter book came out two and a half months after I graduated from high school. It was the symbolic closure to my childhood. I first read Harry Potter when I was 10 and I last read Harry Potter when I was 18. It was like, I, I you, you could not have been luckier to experience it like then like people who were born around our age did because yes. we it wasn't i mean which is not to say that like no don't go and binge read them like my nephew did which that's great but like there's something special and unique about watching a familiar property grow up as you do and has has pokemon done that yes cool so <laughs> that's my that's my uh suggestion for you <laughs> video games uh sequels uh, well, my recommendation from the week is, and I only just started watching it, so I don't have a whole, uh, I, like, I don't have the entire frame of it, but I started watching a series of unfortunate events, which came out on Friday the 13th on Netflix, and that book series was, funny enough, as we were just talking about Harry Potter, it was, like, a contemporary of Harry Potter, it kind of came out around the same time, and I, uh... I always found it delightful in its dark humor and I, I don't know I just liked it stylistically and the movie that came out way back in I think 2004 or something just didn't quite hit the mark and the show so far I've only watched one episode of it but it seems to be um, it seems to be doing justice to the material a lot better I think the tone is more on it's just like darkly humorous and there's something about it that oddly reminds me of like a Wes Anderson film I mean that kind of just goes in line with what Netflix has given us in general though is Netflix doesn't care about 
box office numbers. In fact, they don't release any kind of that viewership data. What they care about is loyalty. And so they're a lot more likely to produce things that aren't going to be like full on like hits, you know, mm-hmm. the, they're not trying to do the mainstream appeal. And I think so many of us have gotten like burnt out on a lot of Hollywood movies because every movie is trying to be everything for everybody now. Right. And I think Netflix is trying to unwind that a little bit. Yeah, they're they're, you know, targeting to niche audiences um in the same way that we as a podcast are a very niche audience. <laughs> <laughs> Hi all you people out there reading Cloud Atlas with us. Thank you. This, Hi, is a weird, this is a weird thing to do and we're really glad that you're on board with it. Hi Dana Victor. Thank you for being so enthusiastic about our project. Yes. Hell yes. Yes. Hi Dana Victor. We love hearing from you. Dana Victor. <laughs> da- I'm putting it out right now. Dana Victor is number one fan right now. <laughs> other other listeners, you got you can unseat her. Okay. You just had like add us on Twitter. Talk to us. Uh, and maybe you can become our number one fan <laughs> right now. That's Dana Victor. Shout out. <laughs> also, hi, Dad, because Dad's been reading along with us, and he talks to me every now and then about it. So, <laughs> oh nice. I didn't oh, awesome. That. Yeah. Uh, sorry, also, Katie's I dad, will... for not being our number one fan. But you can you can d- <laughs> dethrone Dana Victor. You got to get on Twitter. <laughs> I will say it looks like I've I've left Twitter. It's maybe not i don't know i i've stopped tweeting very consciously and i've stopped checking twitter very consciously on a regular basis but i still anytime somebody like mentions me or sends something to me i i always look at it and open it up i'm not responding right now just because like i feel that twitter invites me to be way too negative way too easily so i'm like trying to (laughs) wait until i don't want to scream at everything and everybody and what's going on so but we appreciate your positivity about cloud atlas yes yes um i'm on twitter and am always ready to talk about cloud atlas and the podcast um and uh both on the i at ill cast i uh, know i'm sorry is it at ill bookcast yes maybe it is at I- okay anyway our our fine uh show twitter and also my personal twitter uh Let's talk, listeners, about uh, Cloud Atlas or other topics that uh, are of interest. Send us um, recipes for quiche. <laughs> oh, I'll just t- I'll just have um, Lauren send you a recipe for quiche. She's got a really good one. But uh, oh, my my thing of the week. My thing of the week is the city of Philadelphia. Um, <laughs> listeners, here's always sunny there. Uh, it was okay. Uh, listeners, come to Philadelphia. It's a beautiful city. I was there this weekend visiting my old friend Tom. The one who, with me, tried to convince our English teacher that Kurtz was a Christ figure. Um, he's been living in Philadelphia right on 2nd Street. 2nd Street is the, where all of the mummers live and work and have their mummering clubs for the New Year's Day Mummers Parade. Um, which, if you have never heard of that, uh, look it up. But it's a Philadelphia tradition. It's wonderful. Um and we just had a great time, you know. Um, I grew up near Philadelphia, but far enough into the into the burbs that I didn't really get to hang out there a lot growing up. Uh, and as adult, as an adult, um, it's just really fun to uh, to explore a sort of familiar city, uh, sort of for the first time. Um, and Philadelphia, it's great. People there are very friendly, and very the atmosphere is is very relaxed. Uh, but it's also a big city. It's one of the biggest cities in America with lots of cool stuff to do uh, and things to see. Um, and really good bars. 
went to a couple good bars while I was there. So, yeah. uh, if you can manage the trip, the city of Philadelphia is my favorite thing of the week. <laughs> you got to love uh, any city that manages to take a world-class art museum and turn it into a piece of famous exercise equipment. That's a good quip about Philadelphia, John. Did you make that up? You know, I'm just going to leave you with this, um, this, this riddle. Is it called Pennsylvania Station because it's the worst place in New York City? Or is it the worst place in New York City because it's called Pennsylvania Station? <laughs> well, it didn't used to be called Pennsylvania Station. Or wait, no. I mean, it did used to be called Pennsylvania Station, but it didn't used to be the world worst place in New York City because it used to be pretty cool. And then they knocked it down, and now it's not cool. So I think that it's the worst place in New York City, and that is not res- in regards to its name. I think I just have to. I just have to take you down a notch since you're talking. Unsma- Since you're talking unsmack about Philly, I have to talk smack about Philly. What? Ah, okay, fine. Them's fighting words. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's my two cents. John, have you ever been to Philadelphia? I've been to the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Okay, I mean, that's great. Uh, the Philadelphia Museum of Art is wonderful, but, like, uh, you should just, like, hang out around town one, one time. It's a lot of fun. I've been to Philadelphia once for two hours to see a... An exhibit on Leger. Gotcha. Well, one of the things I like about Philly is that the beer is about half the price that it is in the comparable bar in New York City. So that helps. Sky, you've been to my office. Beer is free. (sighs) Okay, John, we don't all work at ridiculous tech companies that have free beer in your office. I also actually have free beer in my office, but so I guess I shouldn't talk. (laughs) <laughs> Katie, do you have free beer in your office? I do. Because if, if not... I do not, and you're both horrible. You should get on that. It's pretty <laughs> great setup. Katie, you need to just come visit New York so I can get you drunk at Squarespace. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. All right. So, in conclusion, John should go to Philadelphia. Katie should come to New York. <laughs> Katie's dad should join Twitter, and everybody <laughs> else should read Cloud Atlas. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Dana Victor. It... This concludes Interlibrary Loan this week and transmission. Oh, we'll see you next week, everybody, where we uh, read the final eight letters from Zettelgum and catch up with that old gem. Oh, I'm so stoked. Robert Frobisher. I'm John. I'm Katie. And I'm Sky. Thanks for listening. Library Loan. You can find us online at illbook.club and you can send us an email to hello at illbook.club. We do our best to respond to each email, so please let us know about your thoughts and feel free to recommend any books you'd like us to discuss in the show. We are Interlibrary Loan on Facebook and at illbookcast on Twitter, and we love hearing from you. If you're not already a subscriber, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. We would particularly appreciate it if you would give us a rating in iTunes. It really helps us to show up in searches and reach a new audience. We also have a Patreon page where you can donate as little as $1 a month to help us grow our podcast. Through your generous support, we've been able to purchase many new pieces of equipment, helping us bring you a better-sounding, more professional podcast. Nothing makes us more excited than a new pledge, and we greatly appreciate all the support we've received so far. 